The morning text is from the first book in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 24, starting with verse 1. Genesis 24, 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. I think I would be remiss if I didn't declare in the midst of the great congregation the faithfulness of the Lord in regard to David and Sally's being back with us this morning. Many of you know that for six months we've prayed that they would come through their great time of testing there in Ecuador and come through not alone but with daughter Amy and they did this week and they're back with us in service this morning and I praise the Lord in your presence for you to know that I have been counting on him that they would pass the test in faith and they did and to him belongs the glory so my vow is complete now Jesus taught us to pray every day, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Therefore, everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord makes it his aim day by day, consistently and heartily to do the will of God the way that the angels do it in heaven. And if we're not making it our aim to do the will of God day by day, then it is very likely that we do not belong to Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sister. In other words, the family resemblance in the family of God is not so much perfect performance of the will of God, but rather persistent purposing to do it day by day. The mark of the child of God is not that we always hit the bullseye of God's will, but that we always aim at the targets appointed by the Father day by day. The great aim of the church 
is to do the will of God on earth the way it's done in heaven. And for many of us, that means a constant struggle for two things. On the one hand, to know what the will of God is for our personal lives. And on the other hand, to maintain a strong confidence that God will give us the strength that we need to do it and run interference for us so that all obstacles will be removed. Now, in Genesis 24, verses 1 to 9, I think we've got an incident from Abraham's life that shows us, on the one hand, how he discovered God's will, and on the other hand, how he kept his confidence strong that God would always be running interference when he held close to God's will. And I think the reason stories like this are put in the Bible for us is that we might learn, one, how to know his will, and two, how to keep that confidence in God's help strong. So, in advance, let me tell you what I think the main point to be learned about these two things is from this text. I think the main point is this. We can know God's will and we can maintain confidence in his help to do it if we're familiar with the trajectories of his word. Now, in this day and age, I hope everybody knows what trajectories are. The last 25 years, we've heard that on, on the television. A trajectory of a rocket is the path that it will follow on the basis of its uh, shape and speed and weight and direction. So that you can know in advance what the trajectory or the path of that rocket's going to be if you know enough about the rocket and how it's moving. Now, I think that's the way it is with knowing God's word and finding out God's will. The Bible simply does not give you a radar screen or a blueprint of your life tomorrow. It leaves so many questions unanswered about what you should do. And the intention, I think, of God is that you are to be able to find out God's will tomorrow by becoming very familiar with the trajectories of God's word that you know from the past. And you could add to that the trajectories of his work that he has been doing in your life up to this time. If you become familiar enough with the weight and direction and the shape and speed of the word of God, then you'll be able to trace out the trajectory of God's will for you and maintain strength in his help. Now, let's see how that worked for Abraham. I think maybe if we look at how Abraham did it, that we might become better at it. Sometimes God spoke to Abraham directly, told him exactly what to do face to face. But if you read the story, you realize that those times were few and far between. Decades between the times we read of God speaking to Abraham. Most of the time, Abraham, like us, was left to trace out trajectories 
from what God had said in the past into the future so that he'd know what to do with his life, what steps to take. That's what's happening, I think, here in Genesis 24, 1 to 9. There are three trajectories from God's word that combine into one line of God's will for Abraham here. The first trajectory is this. Isaac must have a wife. The second trajectory is this. The wife may not be a Canaanite woman. And the third trajectory is this. Isaac may not return to the land from which Abraham left to get a wife. Those three trajectories merge for Abraham into a line of decision. And the decision he is convinced is God's will. And the decision is this. I will send my trusted servant to get a wife for my son from among my own kindred in my own land. Abraham determines the will of God for the future by tracing out trajectories that he has learned from the past word of God. And then he's confident, absolutely confident, so confident that he says in verse seven, God will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son. From which I infer once we know the will of God, we can have tremendous confidence that God is going to work for us to clear away all obstacles to its success. Many of you have had that kind of experience. Now, we want that to happen in our lives, don't we? I don't think there's probably a person in this room who wouldn't say right now in your own heart, I want Every day to know clearly God's will for me. I want to know. I want to have questions answered about marriage, children, job changes, major purchases, schooling decisions, the use of my leisure time and what to do with it, special ministries and whether to get involved and how deeply involved, church affiliation, Bethlehem or another one. Percentage of our income to give to the church and to give to world vision and to give to world relief and to give to the BGC and to give here, there and everywhere. I want to know God's will. I think all of you probably would say that. And you want confidence that he will work for you once you have hit upon the will that if he tells you it's. His will to give 15 percent of your income to Bethlehem. He's going to work for you and make that 85 percent stretch vastly farther than the 100 percent would have ever reached. That's the kind of faith we want once we hit upon God's will. We want to be led and led in triumph, as Paul said. Now, scriptures like Genesis 24 are given to help us maintain that insight and that confidence. I think. And so I want us to look at it even more closely. The reason that I call these three things in Genesis 24 trajectories and not commands is because God never commanded Abraham explicitly that his son must have a wife, that his wife could not be a Canaanitess, and that he may not return to Mesopotamia. 
He never said that. The only way Abraham could determine that, so far as we see from Scripture, is by tracing out trajectories from things God did say to him in the past. And he had said things that pointed in that direction. God had, as it were, launched the rocket of his will. And now and then, he allowed the the clouds at Cape Canaveral to clear for Abraham. And Abraham could see the kind of rocket it was, the direction it was going, and how fast it was going. And then the clouds came back over. And Abraham was left to trace out the trajectory for his own behavior from what God had revealed of the rocket's path and nature. And I think what we can do that would be most helpful is to go back and look at those little Cape Canaveral glimpses that Abraham had to see how he traced out the trajectory from God's word to arrive at this decision that he was so confident about, namely that his son should not go to Mesopotamia, not have a Canaanite wife, but rather that his servant should go get her. All right, the first trajectory then, let's just look at them one at a time. The first trajectory that Abraham projected into the future was this. Isaac must have a wife. He was 40 years old in chapter 24. Now, not every father can have that kind of confidence. It is God's will for some people to be single and to magnify the mercy of God in the kingdom through that way. But not so Abraham, because of what God had said. Here's what God had said. Genesis 12, 2. God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. Genesis 15, 5. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. Now, it doesn't take too much knowledge of space physics to figure out where this rocket is heading. Isaac's got to have a wife because he's got to have children. Or someone might say, what about Ishmael? Couldn't it be Ishmael who gets the wife and has the descendants? Ishmael was Abraham's son. They would be his descendants. And the answer is no, because God had cleared the clouds just a little higher up and he saw the rocket take a turn in this direction Genesis 21:12 through Isaac shall your descendants be named and Genesis 17:19 I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him and so Abraham knew the trajectory of God's word and the trajectory was 40 years old you must have a wife or the promise will come to naught because you must bear children. Second trajectory. Abraham saw that Isaac's wife may not be taken from the Canaanite women. Now, why? God had never said that explicitly. Where did he get that confidence? I could think of two things in Abraham's life that allowed him to trace out the trajectory in that way. The first one was this. You remember that Sarah, his wife, was barren. And instead of trusting God at that point in his life, Abraham failed. He took Hagar, an Egyptian handmaid of Sarah, 
and had a son by her, Ishmael. And he hoped like crazy that Ishmael would be the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. And he asked God that that would be the case. But God responds like this in Genesis seventeen nineteen: No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and I will establish my covenant with him. Isaac. Now, I wonder, might not Abraham have seen little hints of a trajectory in that experience? Namely, watch out lest you choose wives wrongly. And Hagar, being an Egyptian, might have indicated to Abraham, don't go after pagan wives whether it be Canaanites or Egyptians. But even more important, I think, than that experience, because there are other things he might have concluded from that experience, was, was a word that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15:16. God tells Abraham in Genesis 15:16 that his descendants were going to be oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. And then they are going to return, and this is what he says. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's why it's going to be 400 years till you get this land. The iniquity of the Amorites who live here is not yet complete. Now, the Amorites probably stand simply for all the pagan peoples in Canaan. They're sometimes used interchangeably with Canaanites, sometimes over against Canaanites. But the principle would apply to all the idolatrous people in Canaan. In other words, the people here are appointed for judgment because of their sin. And I'm going to give them 400 years so that when I sweep through here and destroy those lands, their sin would have a chance to become so appalling that no one would accuse God of injustice for wiping them out. Now. Having been told that, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. If God had told you that about the people in which you live, would you have been inclined to make marriage alliances with them? I don't think so. I think Abraham saw a trajectory here. I am not to involve my son in a marriage alliance with the women who are appointed for destruction because of their sin and idolatry. But rather, I am to guard him against that kind of danger. I must take a wife for my son from my own kindred. Now, his own kindred were not, of course, perfect. But evidently, he saw less danger for Isaac to be enticed into idolatry and into destruction and the collapse of the promise that way than if he had permitted him or urged him to marry a Canaanite woman. So, from everything God had said, Abraham determines a trajectory, and the trajectory is this. You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's the second one. And now the third trajectory that Abraham saw in God's word was that Isaac may not return. He may not go back to Mesopotamia. That would have been a natural thing. Send him back to get a wife. If all you need is descendants, go back and marry one of your kinsmen. Nahor's house. Abraham's brother. But Abraham was adamant 
Verse six. See to it that you do not take my son back there. Verse eight at the end. You must not take my son back there. Now, why was he so adamant that Isaac may not return to Mesopotamia? What had God said? He had never commanded that. What was the rocket that gave rise to this trajectory in Abraham's mind? Well, I think it's probably clear from this truth. God had called Abraham out of Mesopotamia into a land which was promised to him and his descendants for an everlasting possession. And the only thing Abraham could imagine that would be meant by leaving the land and going to Mesopotamia is that God would not have the power to fulfill the promise in the land. He said in Genesis 13:14 to Abraham, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your descendants after you forever. Genesis 17, 8. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So, I conclude then that there were three trajectories of which Abraham was sure. And that he had traced out from the past glimpses of God's revelation in the past. One, Isaac must not have a wife because must have a wife because God had promised descendants Two, she must not come from the Canaanites, lest he be drawn away into idolatry and forsake the God of the promise. Three. Isaac must not return to Mesopotamia, lest he be lured away from the land of promise that has been given to him for an everlasting possession. And thus, by looking back, Abraham is able to trace out the trajectories of God's will for his own life. Namely, I will send my servant to Nahor's house in Mesopotamia. He will get a wife and bring her back. And that will fulfill all God's will. And he was certain of it. So confident that in verse 5, when the servant says, well, maybe the woman won't be willing to come to this land. Abraham responds with this verse. And this was the verse that really arrested me when I read this text. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. He had no doubt it was going to succeed. For he was confident he had traced out the trajectories of God's word correctly. Abraham believed the God of promise and he glorified him in that way. When the trajectories of God's word merge to form a decision in our hearts, we may be absolutely confident that Almighty God is going to send his angel before us and clear away all objections and all obstacles. So it seems to me that there are two fundamental lessons from this story. One is that we discover God's will for our lives 
by tracing out the trajectories of God's word or being very familiar with what gives rise to the trajectories of his will in his word. And the other lesson is that God really does work powerfully for those who have hit upon his will and are devoted to doing it in faith. Now, I want you to see some implications of this in closing. The first implication that I see of this is that it means that if you're really serious about doing God's will every day, like Jesus says we must be serious, then you will become a meditative student of God's word. And I say meditative because it's not just memorized facts that we need. We need such a familiarity with the way God is and what he has said that we see trajectories. And the way you see trajectories coming out of God's word is by, as you read it, prayerfully asking, what's the point of this? Where does this lead? Why did he say this in this way? Where's he heading here? What's this leading to? And when you ask those kinds of questions as you read, you are meditating if you bathe them in prayer. If you're not spending much time in meditative study of God's word, then my guess is that probably doing the will of God is not the passion of your life. There are people in this church for whom doing the will of God from morning to night is not their all-consuming passion. And probably, if that's your situation, when you now and then ask the question, well, what is God's will in this situation? You get all confused and don't know where to turn and don't have a clue what the will of God is because this Satan is at work 168 hours a week to fill your mind with lies about the will of God and to deceive you. And he has seen to it that you are surrounded almost entirely by a Christless culture in which the mood, the entertainment, the advertising... The recreation and the politics are shot through with lies about what you should feel and think and do. And do you think that in this atmosphere you can maintain a strong and free and renewed mind with a ten minute glance at God's word once a day? The main reason that there are people in the church who are just like everybody else in the world except with a little thin religious veneer that shows up on Sunday is because so many church people devote 99% of their time absorbing the trajectories of the world. And 1% of their time absorbing the trajectories of God. 
If you want to bring forth the will of God in your life, like a woman brings forth a child, you must marry the Bible. And not treat the Bible as a stranger, like you, you pass on the way to work in the morning, hello, and keep going, but never invite over for a leisurely evening of conversation. Almost never invite with you to spend long periods of time on vacation, but just greet, hi, And you think that that stranger will have any impact on your life? Do not be surprised then if you are ill-equipped to trace out the trajectories of the Word of God and know His will for your life. It won't happen. And you will be confused and you will be depressed and miserable because of half-hearted commitment to the Lord. Now, summer is the time for experiments. So I want to suggest an experiment to you. If you are concerned about something in your life, and surely everybody here must have something in your life you'd like to know the will of the Lord on, some decision you're facing or will be facing soon, may I suggest you do this? Plan in the next two weeks, sometime in the next two weeks, To find a place totally alone, now that's not easy for some of you, I know. If you've got a big family and a small house, you've got to work hard at it. Find a place totally alone, maybe at a park or a lake or in the basement, and for four hours, without stopping, read the Bible. Interspersing only prayer if your eyes get tired. Four hours, without stopping. And I promise you that two things will happen. One of two things. For many of you, you will come away from that saturation with the decision made. The clouds will be swept away. The rocket's direction will be absolutely clear. And you will walk away from that lake confident. Others, it won't come that easy. Not all decisions come that quick. And if it doesn't come that quickly, something else will happen, though. You will sense coming over you an amazing sense of purification and stabilizing in your mind. Whereas before, you were going this direction, then that direction, and you were flitting all over the place and didn't know what to do. You will come away and God will have settled down on you And there will be in your mind a remarkable sense of sturdiness. And you'll wonder why you hadn't done it before. 